Hi, my name is Ashley Bell. I'm a trans woman from Scotland, and I'm also a voice actor. And today I'm going to be reading to you this chapter of A Phantom Lover by Vernon Lee. But before we begin, there's two quick things I want to shout out. One, I have a YouTube channel under Voice Quills, so if you enjoy hearing my voice, feel free to check it out. And also, a quick shout out to Rhino Revolution UK and their rescue, rehabilitate, and release program for injured pangolins that have been injured during poaching. They are the most poached animal in the world, and any help towards them is much appreciated. Now, on to the reading. What Mrs Oak showed me in the yellow room was a large bundle of papers, some printed and some manuscript, but all of them brown with age, which she took out of an old Italian ebony inlaid cabinet. It took her some time to get them, as a complicated arrangement of double locks and false drawers had to be put in play, and while she was doing so, I looked round the room, in which I'd been only three or four times before. It was certainly the most beautiful room in this beautiful house, and, as it seemed to me now, the most strange. It was long and low, was something that made you think of the cabin of a ship, with a great mullioned window that let in, as it were, a perspective of the brownish-green parkland, dotted with oaks, and sloping upwards to the distant line of bluish firs against the horizon. The walls were hung with flowered damask, whose yellow faded to brown, united with the reddish colour of the carving wainscoting, and the carved oaken beams. For the rest, it reminded me more of an Italian room than an English one. The furniture was Tuscan, of the early 17th century, inlaid and carved, and there were a couple of faded allegorical pictures by some Bolognese master. On the walls, and in a corner, among a stack of dwarf orange trees, a little Italian harpsichord of exquisite curve and slenderness, the flowers and landscapes painted upon its cover. In a recess was a shelf of old books, mainly English and Italian poets of the Elizabethan time, and close by it, placed upon a carved wedding chest, a large and beautiful melon-shaped lute, the panes of the mullion window were open, and yet the air seemed heavy, with an indescribable heady perfume, not that of any growing flower, but like that of old stuff that had been lain for years among spices. "'It's a beautiful room!' I exclaimed. "'I should awfully like to paint you in it.' But I had scarcely spoken the words, and I felt I had done wrong. This woman's husband could not bear the room, and it seemed to me vaguely as if you were right in detesting it. Mrs. Oak took no notice of my exclamation, but beckoned me to the table where she was standing sorting the papers. Look, she said, these are all poems by Christopher Lovelock. And touching the yellow papers with delicate and reverent fingers, she commenced reading some of them out loud in a slow, half-audible voice. They were songs in the style of those of Herrick, Waller, and Drayton, complaining for the most part of the cruelty of a lady called Dryop, in whose name was evidently concealed a reference to that of the mistress of Oakhurst. The songs were graceful, and not without a certain faded passion, but I was thinking not of them, or of the woman who was reading them to me. Mrs. Oak was standing with the brownish-yellow wall as a background to her white brocade dress, which, in its stiff 17th-century make, seemed but to bring out more clearly the slightness, the exquisite suppleness, of her tall figure. She held the papers in one hand, and leaned the other, as if for support, on the inlaid cabinet by her side. Her voice, which was delicate, shadowy, like her person, had a curious, throbbing cadence, as if she were reading the words of a melody and restraining herself with difficulty from singing it. And as she read, her long, slender throat throbbed slightly, 
and a faint redness came into her thin face. She evidently knew the verses by heart, and her eyes were mostly fixed with that distant smile in them, with which harmonized a constant tremulous smile on her lips. That is how I would wish to paint her, I exclaimed within myself, and scarcely noticed what struck me on thinking over the scene, that the strange being read those verses as one might fancy a woman who would read love verses addressed to herself. Those are all written for Alice Oak, Alice the daughter of Virgil Pomfret, she said slowly, folding up the papers. I found them at the bottom of this cabinet. Can you doubt the reality of Christopher Lovelock now? The question was an illogical one, for to doubt of the existence of Christopher Lovelock was one thing, and to doubt of the mode of his death was another, but somehow I did feel convinced. Look, she said, when she had replaced the poems, I will show you something else. Among the flowers that stood on the upper story of her writing table, for I found that Mrs. Oak had a writing table in the yellow room, stood, as on an altar, a small black carved frame, with a silk curtain drawn over it, a sort of thing behind which you would have expected to find a head of Christ or of the Virgin Mary. She drew the curtain and displayed a large-sized miniature, representing a young man with auburn curls and a peaked auburn beard, dressed in black, but with lace around his neck, and large pear-shaped pearls in his ears, a wistful, melancholy face. Mrs. Oak took the miniature religiously off its stand, and showed me, written in faded characters upon the back, the name Christopher Lovelock, and the date 1626. I found this in the secret drawer of that cabinet, together with the heap of poems, she said, taking the miniature out of my hand. I was silent for a minute. Does... does Mr. Oak know that you've got it here? I asked, then wondered what in the world had impelled me to put such a question. Mrs. Oak smiled, that smile of contemptuous indifference. I have never hidden it from anyone. If my husband disliked my having it, he might have taken it away, I suppose. It belongs to him, since it was found in his house. I did not answer, but walked mechanically towards the door. There was something heady and oppressive in this beautiful room, something, I thought, almost repulsive in this exquisite woman. She seemed to me, suddenly, perverse and dangerous. I scarcely know why, but I neglected Mrs. Oak that afternoon. I went to Mr. Oak's study, and sat opposite to him smoking while he was engrossed in his accounts, his reports, and electioneering papers. On the table, above the heap of paper-bound volumes and pigeonholed documents, was, as sole ornament of his den, a little photograph of his wife, done some years before. I don't know why, but as I sat and watched him, with his florid, honest, manly beauty, working away conscientiously, with that little perplexed frown of his, I felt intensely sorry for this man. But this feeling did not last. There was no help for it. Oak was not as interesting as Mrs. Oak, and it required too great an effort to pump up sympathy for this normal, excellent, exemplary young squire, in the presence of so wonderful a creature as his wife. So I let myself go to the habit of allowing Mrs. Oak daily to talk over her strange craze, or rather of drawing her out about it. I confess that I derived a morbid and exquisite pleasure in doing so. It was so characteristic in her, so appropriate to the house. It completed her personality so perfectly, and made it so much easier to conceive a way of painting her. I made up my mind little by little, working at William Oak's portrait, he proved a less easy subject than I had anticipated, and, despite his conscientious efforts, was a nervous, uncomfortable sitter, silent, and 
brooding. I made up my mind that I would paint Mrs. Oak standing by the cabinet in the yellow room, in the white Van Dyke dress copied from the portrait of her ancestress. Mr. Oak might resent it. Mrs. Oak might even resent it. They might refuse to take the picture, to pay for it, to allow me to exhibit. They might force me to run my umbrella through the picture. No matter. That picture should be painted, if merely for the sake of having painted it. For I felt it was the only thing I could do, and that it would be far away from my best work. I told neither of my resolution, but prepared sketch after sketch of Mrs. Oak, while continuing to paint her husband. Mrs. Oak was a silent person, more silent even than her husband, for she did not feel bound, as he did, to attempt to entertain a guest or to show any interest in him. She seemed to spend her life, a curious, inactive, half-invalidish life, broken by sudden fits of childish cheerfulness, in an eternal daydream, strolling about the house and grounds, arranging the quantities of flowers that always filled all the rooms, beginning to read and then throwing aside novels and books of poetry, of which she always had a large number, and, I believe, lying for hours, doing nothing, on a couch in that yellow drawing room, which, with her sole exception, no member of the Oak family had ever been known to stay in alone. Little by little, I began to suspect, and to verify, another eccentricity of this eccentric being, and to understand why there were stringent orders never to disturb her in that yellow room. It had been a habit at Oakhurst, as at one or two other English manor houses, to keep a certain amount of the clothes of each generation, more particularly wedding dresses. A certain carved oaken press, of which Mr. Oak once displayed the contents to me, was a perfect museum of costumes, male and female, from the early years of the 17th to the end of the 18th century, a thing to take away the breath of a bric-a-brac collector, an antiquary, or a genre painter. Mr. Oak was none of these, and therefore took but little interest in the collection, save in so far as it interested his family feeling. Still, he seemed well acquainted with the contents of that press. He was turning over the clothes for my benefit, when suddenly I noticed that he frowned. I know not what impelled me to say, By the way, have you any dresses of that Mrs. Oak whom your wife resembles so much? Have you got that particular white dress she was painted in, perhaps? Oak of Oakhurst flushed very red. We have it, he answered hesitantly, but it isn't here at present. I can't find it, I suppose, he blurted out with an effort. That Alice has got it. Mrs. Oak sometimes has the fancy of having some of these old things down. I suppose she takes ideas from them. A sudden light dawned in my mind. The white dress in which I had seen Mrs. Oak in the yellow room, the day that she showed me Lovelock's verses, was not, as I had thought, a modern copy. It was the original dress of Alice Oak, the daughter of Virgil Pomfret, the dress in which, perhaps, Christopher Lovelock had seen her in that very room. The idea gave me a delightful, picturesque shudder. I said nothing, but I pictured to myself Mrs. Oak sitting in that yellow room, that room which no Oak of Oakhurst save herself ventured to remain in alone, in the dress of her ancestress, confronting, as it were, that vague, haunting something that seemed to fill the place, that vague presence, it seemed to me, of the murdered cavalier poet. Mrs. Oak, as I have said, was extremely silent, as a result of being extremely indifferent. She really did not care in the least about anything except her own ideas and daydreams, except when, every now and then, she was seized with a sudden desire to shock the prejudices or superstitions of her husband. Very soon she got into the way of never talking to me at all, save about Alice and Nicholas Oak and Christopher Lovelock, and then, when the fit seized her, 
She would go on by the hour, never asking herself whether I was or was not equally interested in the strange craze that fascinated her. It so happened that I was. I loved to listen to her, going on discussing by the hour the merits of Lovelock's poems and analysing her feelings and those of her two ancestors. It was quite wonderful to watch the exquisite exotic creature in one of these moods, with the distant look in her grey eyes and the absent-looking smile in her thin cheeks, talking as if she had intimately known these people of the 17th century, discussing every minute mood of theirs, detailing every scene between them and their victim, talking of Alice, and Nicholas, and Lovelock, as she might of her most intimate friends. Of Alice particularly, and of Lovelock, she seemed to know every word that Alice had spoken, every idea that had crossed her mind. It sometimes struck me as if she were telling me, speaking of herself in the third person, of her own feelings, as if I were listening to a woman's confidences, the recital of her doubts, scruples, and agonies about a living lover. For Mrs. Oak, who seemed the most self-absorbed of creatures in all other matters, and utterly incapable of understanding or sympathising with the feelings of other persons, entered completely and passionately into the feelings of this woman, this Alice, who at some moments seemed not to be another woman, but herself. But how could she do it? How could she kill the man she cared for? I once asked her. Because she loved him more than the world, she exclaimed, and rising suddenly from her chair, walked towards the window, covering her face with her hands. I could see from the movement of her neck that she was sobbing. She did not turn around, but she motioned me to go away. Don't let us talk any more about it, she said. I am ill today, and silly. I closed the door gently behind me. What mystery was there in this woman's life? This listlessness, this strange self-engrossment, and stranger mania about people long dead, this indifference and desire to annoy towards her husband, did it all mean that Alice Oak had loved, or still loved, someone who was not the master of Oakhurst? And his melancholy, his preoccupation, the something about him that told of a broken youth, did it mean that he knew it? The following days, Mrs. Oak was in a condition of quite unusual good spirits. Some visitors, distant relatives, were expected, and although she had expressed the utmost annoyance at the idea of their coming, she was now seized with a fit of housekeeping activity, and was perpetually about arranging things and giving orders, although all arrangements, as usual, had been made, and all orders given, by her husband. William Oak was quite radiant. If only Alice was always well like this, he exclaimed. If only she would take, or could take, an interest in life. How different things would be. But, he added, as if fearful, lest he should be supposed to accuse her in any way. How can she, usually, with her wretched health? Still, it does make me awfully happy to see her like this. I nodded, but I cannot say that I really acquiesced in his views. It seemed to me, particularly with the recollection of yesterday's extraordinary scene, that Mrs. Oak's high spirits were anything but normal. There was something in her unusual activity, and still more unusual cheerfulness, that was merely nervous and feverish. And I had, the whole day, the impression of dealing with a woman who was ill, and who would very speedily collapse. Mrs. Oak spent her day wandering from one room to another, and from the garden to the greenhouse, seeing whether all was in order, when, as a matter of fact, all was always in order at Oakhurst. She did not give me any sitting, and not a word was spoken about Alice Oak or Christopher Lovelock, 
Indeed, to a casual observer, it might have seemed as if all that craze about Lovelock had completely departed, or never existed. About five o'clock, as I was strolling among the red brick round gabled outhouses, each with its armorial oak, and the old-fashioned spalliered kitchen and fruit garden, I saw Mrs. Oak standing, her hands full of York and Lancaster roses, upon the steps facing the stables. A groom was curry-combing a horse, and outside the coach-house was Mr. Oak's little high-wheeled cart. "'Let us have a drive!' suddenly exclaimed Mrs. Oak, on seeing me. "'Look what a beautiful evening, and look at that dear little cart! It is so long since I have driven, and I feel as if I must drive again. Come with me, and you, harness Jim at once and come round to the door.' I was quite amazed, and still more so when the cart drove up before the door, and Mrs. Oak called to me to accompany her. She sent away the groom, and in a minute we were rolling along, at a tremendous pace, along the yellow sand road, with the sere pasturelands, the big oaks, on either side. I could scarcely believe my senses. This woman, in her mannish little coat and hat, driving a powerful young horse with the utmost skill, and chattering like a schoolgirl of sixteen, could not be the delicate, morbid, exotic hothouse creature, unable to walk or to do anything who spent her days lying about on couches in the heavy atmosphere, redolent with strange scents and associations of the yellow drawing-room. The movement of the light carriage, the cool draught, the very grind of the wheels upon the gravel, seemed to go to her head like wine. "'It is so long since I have done this sort of thing,' she kept repeating. "'So long, so long! Oh, don't you think it delightful, going at this pace, with the idea that any moment the horse may come down and we too be killed?' And she laughed her childish laugh and turned her face, no longer pale, but flushed with the movement and the excitement, towards me. The cart rolled on quicker and quicker, one gate after another swinging two behind us, as we flew up and down the little hills, across the pasture lands, through the little red brick gabled villages where the people came out to see us pass, past the rows of willows along the streams and the dark green compact hop fields, with the blue and hazy treetops of the horizon getting bluer and more hazy as the yellow light began to graze the ground. At last we got to an open space, a high-lying piece of common land, such as is rare in that ruthlessly utilised country of grazing grounds and hop gardens. Among the low hills of the Weald, it seemed quite preternaturally high up, giving a sense that its extent of flat heather and gorse, bound by distant firs, was really on top of the world. The sun was setting just opposite, and its lights lay flat on the ground, staining it with the red and black of the heather, or rather turning it into the surface of a purple sea, canopied over by a bank of dark purple clouds, the jet-light sparkle of the dry ling and gorse tipping the purple like sunlit wavelets. A cold wind swept in our faces. "'What is the name of this place?' I asked. It was the only bit of impressive scenery that I had met in the neighbourhood of Oakhurst. It is called Coates Common, answered Mrs. Oak, who had slackened the pace of the horse and let the reins hang loose about his neck. It was here that Christopher Lovelock was killed. Lovelock was riding home one summer evening from Appledore, when, as he got halfway across the Coates Common, somewhere about here, for I have always heard them mention the pond and the old gravel pits as about the place, he saw two men riding towards him, in whom he presently recognised Nicholas Oak of Oakhurst accompanied by a groom. Oak of Oakhurst hailed him, and Lovelock rode up to meet him. "'I am glad to have met you, Mr. Lovelock,' said Nicholas, "'because I have some important news for you. 
and so saying he brought his horse close to the one that Lovelock was riding, and suddenly turning round, fired off a pistol at his head. Lovelock had time to move, and the bullet, instead of striking him, went straight into the head of his horse, which fell beneath him. Lovelock, however, had fallen in such a way as to be able to extricate himself easily from the horse, and drawing his sword, he rushed upon Oak, and seized his horse by the bridle. Oak quickly jumped off and drew his sword, and in a minute Lovelock, who was much the better swordsman of the two, was having the better of him. Lovelock had completely disarmed him, and got his sword at Oak's throat, crying out to him that he would ask forgiveness he should be spared for the sake of their old friendship, when the groom suddenly roared up from behind and shot Lovelock through the back. Lovelock fell, and Oak immediately tried to finish him with his sword, while the groom drew up and held the bridle of Oak's horse. At that moment, the sunlight fell upon the groom's face, and Lovelock recognised Mrs. Oak. He cried out, Alice! Alice! It is you who have murdered me! And died. Then Nicholas Oak sprang into his saddle and rode off with his wife, leaving Lovelock dead by the side of his fallen horse. Nicholas Oak had taken the precaution of removing Lovelock's purse and throwing it into the pond, so the murder was put down to certain highwaymen who were about in that part of the country. Alice Oak died many years afterwards, quite an old woman, in the reign of Charles II. But Nicholas did not live very long, and shortly before his death got into a very strange condition, always brooding, and sometimes threatening to kill his wife. They say that in one of these fits, just shortly before his death, he told the whole story of the murder, and made a prophecy that when the head of his house and master of Oakhurst should marry another Alice Oak descended from himself and his wife, there should be an end of the Oaks of Oakhurst. You see, it seems to be coming true. We have no children, and I don't suppose we shall ever have any. I, at least, have never wished for them. Mrs. Oak paused, and turned her face towards me with the absent smile in her thin cheeks. Her eyes no longer had that distant look. They were strangely eager and fixed. I did not know what to answer. This woman positively frightened me. We remained for a moment in that same place, with the sunlight dying away in crimson ripples on the heather, gilding the yellow banks, the black waters of the pond, surrounded by thin rushes and the yellow gravel pits, while the wind blew in our faces and bent the ragged, bluish tops of the firs. Then Mrs. Oak touched the horse, and off we went at a furious pace. We did not exchange a single word, I think, on the way home. Mrs. Oak sat with her eyes fixed on the reins, breaking the sounds now and then only by a word to the horse, urging him to an even more furious pace. The people we met along the roads must have thought that the horse was running away, unless they noticed Mrs. Oak's calm manner and a look of excited enjoyment in her face. To me, it seemed that I was in the hands of a madwoman, and I quietly prepared myself for being upset or dashed against a cart. It had turned cold, and the draught was icy in our faces when we got within sight of the red gables and high chimney stacks of Oakhurst. Mr. Oak was standing before the door. On our approach, I saw a look of relieved suspense, of keen pleasure, come into his face. He lifted his wife out of the cart in his strong arms, with a kind of chivalrous tenderness. "'I'm so glad to have you back, darling!' he exclaimed. "'So glad! I was delighted to hear you had gone out with the cart, but as you have not driven for so long, I was beginning to be frightfully anxious, dearest. Where have you been all this time?' Mrs. Oak had quickly extricated herself from her husband, 
who had remained holding her as one might hold a delicate child who has been causing anxiety. The gentleness and affection of the poor fellow had evidently not touched her. She seemed almost to recoil from it. "'I have taken him to Coates Common,' she said, with that perverse look which I had noticed before, as she pulled off her driving gloves. "'It is such a splendid old place.' Mr. Oak flushed, as if he had been bitten upon a sore tooth, and the double gash painted itself scarlet between his eyebrows. Outside, the mists were beginning to rise, veiling the parkland dotted with big black oaks, and from which, in the watery moonlight, rose on all sides the eerie little cry of lambs separated from their mothers. It was damp and cold, and I shivered.